0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more
1: information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you'll surely die. you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, good for food, and it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is, it, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel.
0: You can be seated. You can find your place to the passage we just read. We're going to start there this morning, Genesis 2. If, uh, if you're a child and you normally go to Children's Church and you missed the slide, you can be dismissed uh, for Children's Church. And Larry, it's good to have you back. Answer prayer. Let me pray and, and we'll get into our sermon this morning. Father, you you are great and greatly to be praised. You are worthy of all our praise. You are worthy of all our worship. As we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would humble us underneath it. Help us to see in it your glory your greatness, your holiness, your power. Help us to see in it your abundant grace and your steadfast love. Father, I would just pray that as we look at a heavier topic this morning, just the topic of your law and specifically the covenant of works that you entered into with Adam that greatly affected the entire human race, I pray that you would do your perfect work through your word to point us to Christ, that you would help us today to see our great need for Christ our great need for a mediator. I pray that you would help us as we look at your word, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand it, help us to believe what you say, and not our own wisdom, and then help us to obey. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we start a new mini series. I know this is—I think my brother-in-law Josh said—another mini series. (laughs) There are certain things that I think Scripture just kind of naturally flow into. As our last mini series on Acts, we finished the book of John and I just couldn't help but kind of go into at least taking a glimpse into the work, the continuing work of Christ and His church. So we did a a four-week mini-series in in Acts. Well, the next series that we're uh, soon soon to start is a series through the book of Deuteronomy. And I thought very much like leaving John required us to kind of see into Acts. Starting Deuteronomy, and as we deal with the various degrees of the law, and and we look at this last book of the Pentateuch, I think it's a, it, it's important for us to kind of have a refresher on the role of law and gospel in the Bible. One author says, "If a man cannot distinguish a right between the law and the gospel," He cannot rightly understand so much as a single article of divine truth. And that, same, that same thought is captured in various ways by men like Luther and Calvin. We must learn to understand to, to read our scripture, to read the Bible through that lens of law and gospel. And it's not simply that Old Testament is law and New Testament is gospel. In fact, as we'll see in Deuteronomy, we see both aspects in Deuteronomy, law and gospel. And you see even in the gospels themselves aspects of the law that we'll look at today. So this series that we're going to be walking through, we're going to be looking at a few different topics this morning. We're going to be looking at the law as a covenant of works. We'll get into that in just a moment. So this, this Sunday is going to be a little bit more heavy. It's going to be putting the law on our shoulders as we, as we feel the law. And just as I prayed already and I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy who likes to bury the lead, the law is meant to point us, to drive us to Christ not going to give you no, no big surprise there. That's where this sermon is going. It, the law, though heavy and bearing down on us, it reveals our guilt. It, it, it reveals our complete inability. The whole point is to drive us to our knees to Christ. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Next week I get to look at the grace of the gospel. As I kind of pile on the law this morning, next Sunday I'm going to free i going to have to do a little bit of that today. But next week, it'll be lifting that burden off of you in Christ. It's showing you the the complete freedom and grace and mercy, the steadfast love of God graciously giving us Christ. Then in following weeks, we're going to look at various um, aspects of the law, namely, how the law then works in us as believers as a rule of life, no longer underneath its condemning power, but as a rule of life to please our holy and gracious creator. So this morning, as we begin, we're going to, as I said, kind of look at this passage in Genesis that, that Ron read for us. We're going to end up in another passage in in Matthew. But I want to start here, just kind of see the foundations of this covenant of works, or as some have called it, covenant of creation or covenant of life. It's important for us to begin here and to see how that impacts the whole of human history, all from Adam. So as we consider first Adam being placed in the garden, we need to kind of see the context that God has placed him here first we we have to understand that our our God is in no need of us. God did not need to create us because He had some absence some some wanting in and of himself so even in his creation is a is an act of, of love and grace. And he creates Adam and he places him in this garden. And as we understand through the rest of Scripture, we understand that even Adam, in this very beginning stage, Adam being placed in the garden, had the law written upon his heart. This is what Paul speaks of in, in Romans 2, where he, he talks about the Gentiles. And he says, well, even the Gentiles sometimes do what the law requires. And why is that? It's because they have the law written on their heart. Now, it's imperfect, but consider Adam. As Scripture tells us, Adam was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Consider then Adam. If the Gentiles can have the law of God written on their heart, certainly Adam had the law of God written on his heart. And we would confess along with our confession that that law is what we understand is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Well, first we have to understand that the Ten Commandments aren't simply a kind of arbitrary set of commandments that God came up with. God didn't say, I am going to kind of pick some things out of the air that I want people to observe, that, this is, that the Ten Commandments are somehow a test of our faithfulness. We'll talk about a test in just a minute. But the Ten Commandments of themselves are not a test. They come from the very will and nature of God. The Ten Commandments, and we'll get into this more in coming weeks, but the Ten Commandments represent the very nature of God, They flow from whom he is, who he is. He is holy and just and good. And Paul will, will say that exactly of the law. He says the law is holy and just and good. In fact, the 10 commandments from, written on the heart of man from the very beginning, because they flow from the nature of God, they carry through even into eternity. One of the, one of the thoughts that I meditate on frequently as I struggle with my own sin, as, as I struggle against kind of the, the role of the law in my life is thinking forward to eternity, thinking forward to the new heavens and the new earth where we will be fully enjoying God and fully and perfectly obeying Him. That the, the Ten Commandments and all that they entail will be perfectly obeyed there in glory. In fact, as you look toward the end of the story, in Revelation 21, and the new heavens and new earth is being described and we're welcomed in, finally, the thing that has been promised throughout all of Scripture of man dwelling with God and God with man, this communion, this fellowship that we finally have with him. There's language about no liar and, and, and no adulterer being part of this kingdom. And that's because we are perfectly enjoying God and therefore perfectly obeying his commands. So Adam, as God places him in the garden, even at this point, Adam has the commands of God written on his heart. He is, he is given even the ability to obey and we ought to notice in this account in Genesis, even how God, the the setting that God is placing Adam in, as he is about to give him a test of his obedience and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God places him into a garden of plenty. In fact, he says, Adam, look around. Look around at all I have given you. I have provided you every tree of the garden to enjoy, to eat. Then God says, however, there's one tree, just one, that you cannot eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before we take a closer look at that, just consider also God's provision for Adam, not only providing him with plenty to eat and enjoy, he, he, in, the, in ch- chapter 2, what we didn't read immediately goes to God providing the need for a companion, a partner for Adam. As he sees Adam's need for a wife and God causes sleep to fall on Adam, he takes a rib from Adam and, and creates Eve And he gives Eve to Adam, and they are joined in marriage. So Adam is not wanting for anything. Adam is in this beautiful garden, has everything he needs as far as food goes. He has Eve as his wife, as his companion. He has communion with his creator. what What a wonderful thing that Adam has communion with his creator. And God then enters into this covenant with Adam, this covenant that we read about. As I said, God says, I've given you everything that you need. Only do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we understand this covenant, we understand that there are covenant curses and covenant blessings. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we we understand, even observing, that when Adam does fail and Adam does eat, he doesn't physically die right then and there. We understand that it is a holistic death that is being described here. A, a, not only a physical death, which Adam did begin to physically die, but a spiritual death. A separation from his creator. But Adam is placed as our, as our representative head in the garden. He is given all of these things and God enters into this covenant with him that Adam must perfectly die obey the tree of knowledge of good and evil is given to adam as a test of his obedience it's a test of his submission to his creator as i mentioned earlier adam wasn't simply created neutral god didn't simply place adam who who knew nothing into the garden and see which direction he would go. Adam was created in knowledge, righteousness and holiness he was created with the ability to obey. He was written he was created with the law written on his heart. But as we read the story, we realize that even with all these conditions, even with all that God had provided for Adam, he was unable to keep the covenant. You see, he had the ability to believe God. He had the ability to obey him. The alternative to that was choosing his own will. The alternative was saying, God, I know what you have said, but I believe this way is better. And this is the great deception they'd even Satan begins, and Satan comes down and and speaks to Eve. It's that great lie. He says, did God not say? He causes doubt in Eve's mind, and and Adam, we learn from the story, is right there with Eve. The great lie, the great deception, is for Adam and Eve to question their creator, to begin to see wisdom, as found somewhere outside of their creator. To see enjoyment as somewhere outside of their creator. As he said, I've given you all these things to enjoy and I commune with you. I said, well, I think this might be a better option. Well, as Ron read... Adam and Eve rebelled. They did choose that which looked good to the eyes, that looked good to eat. They chose their own will over God's gracious will, as as one person put it. They, instead of acting, behaving as the creature that God had made in His image with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, they, they began to act like a creature who just moved at the impulse of their, of their own longings. Rather than longing after the Creator, they, they fled into just the desires of their heart. And they took and they ate. Well, as we look at the idea of law here, first we have to understand That when they sinned, the law did not become evil. The law did not become evil. They became evil. They became sinful. As As I mentioned before, we know the law to be holy and righteous and good. We oftentimes can fall into this trap where we begin to see the law at odds with our faith that we see the law as something that we no longer have anything to do with, as though somehow the law in and of itself is evil. But what we need to realize is we are the ones with the, with the problem. The problem isn't with the law, the problem is in us. And as, as Adam and Eve sinned against their creator, a few things happened. First, as they enjoyed communion with their Creator, you notice that after they sin, they, they hear the sound of, of God in the garden. And rather than running to Him, rather than fleeing, run, running into His arms, rather than calling out to Him, Father, they, they run and they hide. Ultimately, at the end of chapter 3, we, we see that they are, they are cast out from the garden. God puts them outside of the garden and he, and he sets up his cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden. This horrible separation that man now experiences from God. So this communion that they have is is broken. They run and they hide from their creator. Romans 5, Paul writes that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The point that Paul is making in Romans is, As he is even building up in Romans, we understand that we are all under the condemning work of the law. We are all under this because Adam sinned. We have two representative heads. We have Adam and we have the second Adam, Christ. And Paul says, even by our own experience, because you sin, you understand that you are a child of Adam, even though you do not sin in the same likeness as Adam sinned, you are his child. And because of that, you are in sin and misery and you are under the condemning work of the law. Not only is our communion with God broken, but our communion between one another is broken. Even... It's evident as you read the story of Scripture, but even in chapter 4, you see Cain killing his brother Abel. But even in chapter 3, when the fall begins to happen, the, not, the communion that they had with God is broken as they run and hide. But then immediately as, as God is speaking to them, they start blaming one another. what was meant to be a sweet communion between husband and wife to grow into the family and grow into the community, what was meant to be a a life enjoyed in harmony with one another is now broken. They blame one another. They're ashamed. They stand in each other's presence naked, And scripture says they are ashamed of their nakedness and they they sew together fig leaves and and cover themselves up. The lie, the lie that Satan brought into the garden to saying, in a nutshell, don't believe God. When they chose not to believe God, all creation came tumbling down. Is broken and marred, breaking communion between God and man, breaking communion between one another, set outside the garden. Now, as God walks them through these curses, there's one that stands out. And this is the one that gives us the great hope. And and we're going to look at a a passage in the New Testament to kind of help us understand this better. But in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the great promise of a Messiah. This is the great promise that they are to look for a hero, a a mediator between God and man who can come and heal all that they had just broken by their unbelief. A mediator who can right all these wrongs, who can bring man back into communion with God and with each other. As I mentioned in Revelation, just that great promise of man dwelling with God and God dwelling with man. That he will be their God and they will be his people. That the rest of the story from Genesis 3.15 on is all about that. It's all about it. So much so that God does set them outside of the garden. But it's simply so they will not flee back to the tree of life as this, as this token of this covenant they, that they had been in. He says, I no longer want you fleeing back to this covenant of works. You have failed. There is no hope in that covenant. There is only hope in a hero. There is only hope in this mediator. Only hope in this one who shall bruise the serpent's head. Or crush the serpent's head. So he sets them on. As in a way, telling them to look away from this covenant. We understand in the covenant, as I said earlier, the cursing, and we just saw the result of the cursing. So oftentimes we we neglect to see the promise of the covenant. But the promise of a, of the covenant was life everlasting. Adam was under a prob- probationary p- uh, period of sorts where as At some point, had he perfectly obeyed, he would have ushered the human race into everlasting glory and enjoyment with God. But we know that God's decree, God's plan from the foundation of the earth was to send Christ. And Christ would do what what Adam failed to do and earn this eternal life for us. So let's look. At Matthew 19, it's a passage I referenced a few weeks ago. We're going to look at it in a little more detail this morning. Because we often think as, as we move away from the, the story in Genesis 2 and 3, is we, we might think that this covenant is, because it's broken, it, it, it no longer exists. But the great burden of the law upon all of God's creation is that it does exist, that we are still outside of Christ under this covenant of works. And it's this awful thing to be under this obligation to perfectly obey this law and yet have the complete inability to actually do it, a complete inability to to please our Creator, to obey Him. as our confession writes that the demand to obey this still stands, and the demand is personal, entire, exact and perpetual obedience. There is no higher standard than that. God says, here is the standard. And because the standard is based on my holiness, it is based on my perfection, I cannot lower it. I created Adam with the ability to obey, but Adam failed and brought all humanity down. And now we fall all over ourselves, trying to do the very thing that we can no longer do. And as I said, God in his grace says now that you can't do this you need to begin looking to the one who can Matthew 19 beginning with verse 16 I'm going to read through this passage but I want to stop a few times and just discuss some aspects of it this is one of those passages that's So important for us to understand this law gospel distinction, because if we are reading this thinking this is gospel, we're going to be most people most to be pitied. And behold, verse sixteen. And behold, a man came to him to Jesus, saying, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have?" eternal life what good deed must i do to have eternal life one good thing when someone comes with a with a question is to understand the the premise of their argument and this this man is coming to Christ understanding the covenant of works and kind of placing himself under this covenant of works because he is searching for that promise that had been made to Adam at the very beginning, this promise of eternal life. So his question betrays what he is thinking. What must I do? What must I do to have eternal life? He is looking for something in and of himself that he can point to, to earn this eternal life that since the fall, we are all far away from it. As Paul says in Romans, we all fall short of the glory of God. So Christ, understanding his heart And understanding what this man needs does not show him the gospel. But drops the law on his shoulders. Jesus says in verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life Keep the commandments. So that's, Jesus puts before him that formula for the covenant of works. If you would enter life, this eternal life that you were looking for, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gives him what we would typically call the the second table of the law. Namely, these commands that, that deal on this horizontal level between man and man. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? We live sometimes in the same self-righteousness that this man is living in. We look at the kind of bare statements of the law and we think, okay, I haven't done those things. I should be pretty good. I'm good enough. We know from the teaching of Scripture that Jesus reveals that there is so much more to this as he, as he says in his Sermon on the Mount. I tell you that y- you've heard that you shall not kill. But I say if you've even hated your brother, you're guilty of murder. I say that you've heard that it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say that if you have even looked at a woman to lust after her, you are already guilty. This man comes thinking that he... He is somehow fulfilling this covenant of works. What do I still lack? So Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, presses in on the thing that he knows at the heart of this man he is struggling with most. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus pressed in upon this this aspect of the man that he clung to so tightly, his possessions. Jesus revealed to him this, that the law, this communion with one another, that, that he still acted in a way that was broken between his fellow man because he held his possessions so tightly. And Jesus, verse 23, said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he is speaking specifically to what this young man struggled with, but he uses an example that causes the disciples to understand the true depth of what he is teaching. He is not simply saying that the key to eternal life is selling our, all our possessions. Selling our, all our possessions, giving it to the poor. You, you see this in various teachings in the church where there's some understanding of some basic poverty level that you need to attain to that then you can be faithfully serving Christ. And the question as you, as you l- l- uh, listen to these things, you know, I think more of like some teachings I heard probably seven or eight years ago You think, well, what what is that poverty level? Well, they say, you know, it's a small apartment that's affordable. Like, why not a cardboard box on the street? Wait, that level... We start justifying all these things. But that's not what Jesus was pointing to. Jesus was pointing to the heart. And as Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples understand. And they say, in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? They're not talking simply about rich people. They realize. God is, Jesus is speaking of all humanity. And he has raised the the bar, the standard to God's perfect, holy standard of the law. And they realize that they fall so far short of it, that all humanity falls so far short of it, that they cry out appropriately, who then can be saved? And that is what the law does for us. The law puts us in this place where we understand that we fall so far short of God's holy standard that we should all cry out, who then can be saved? Why can't the standard be lowered? You know, it's, the typical kind of view of maybe s- sidewalk evangelism where you, you ask someone, you know, if you were to die today, what would happen to you? And maybe the typical answer that we have in the United States, at least it used to be, I don't know so much anymore, is like, well, I'll, I'd probably go to heaven. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. Well, God here is saying, Jesus is saying, pretty good doesn't cut it. Pretty good doesn't cut it. You fall so far short of my holiness. God is holy, perfectly and purely holy. And we in Adam are so wholly corrupted that we cannot attain that standard. We can run and work until our fingers are bleeding. As one hymn that we sing oftentimes says, we can cry and cry and our tears are not enough. There's nothing we can do. Even when Jesus summarizes the law, talking about, Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, that's not a lessening of the law. That's a summary of the law. But we ought to read those words carefully and understand the great weight that they have upon us. I can't claim that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, with every fiber of my being constantly perfectly, perpetually, I can't do that. I can't, I can't say that. And loving my neighbor as myself, that's not simply showing love to your neighbor. That's showing love to my neighbor as much as I love and care for myself. We have to realize even in that summary that we fall so far short. The law stands above us and it is condemning to us. Who then can be saved? The law says you must earn. The law says do this and live. Galatians 3.12 says the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. It's from Leviticus 18.5, which says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That is the standard. That is the standard under the covenant of works. Do this and live. And yet we see in Adam, and we see in this young man here in Matthew 19, we all fall Far short. We cannot do this and live. We cannot do this and enter into eternal life. So, what do we do? Well, just like Adam and Eve were set outside the garden. And given this promise of the seed that would come and crush the serpent's head, the promise to them was look for the one who can. Look for the one who will come, who will do this and live. The call is for us to believe. The call isn't for us to to chase after the covenant of works as though we could fulfill it. The law... the the call isn't for us just to try harder, to buckle down and, and to accomplish this thing so that we can have that eternal life. The call for, is for us to turn and believe in God, to believe through faith in Jesus Christ, who's the promised seed from Genesis 3.15. You see, as the law, in, as a covenant of works pushes down upon us, And we realize our complete inability. We realize that we can never keep it. We can never keep it perfectly. We will fail all the time. Each and every one of us has already failed it this morning. As James says, you fail in one point of the law. You have broken the whole thing. And this is why God had to send Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 4, Christ came at the right time, born under the law. And Jesus, as the son of God, did what the first Adam failed to do and he perfectly obeyed. He came, as he said, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To perfectly fulfill it to fulfill it even to the point of death on a cross. Not only fulfilling all the positive commands for, of, of the law, but also taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve as covenant breakers. So much so as, as we looked at last week, discussing our union with Christ, when we simply believe, we do the very thing that Adam and Eve failed in, where they chose not to believe God. When we believe God, when he, through the power of his Holy Spirit in us, causes us to be brought to new life in him so that we can have faith, belief, trust in Jesus Christ, we rest in him, we rest in his finished work. We're gonna look more at that next week as we consider the the beauty of the gospel and the free to us grace of the gospel poured out and lavished on us in Christ. Before this morning, it's important for us to understand that God is not calling us to the covenant of works. He's not calling us to the law as something that we do to regain his favor that was lost in the garden. God is calling us to believe in him. God is calling us to rest in him. So as we look at the law in the coming weeks and as we come to Deuteronomy in a few weeks, we have to understand that we don't, no longer relate to the law, as it were, as a, as a covenant of works. We no longer relate to it as that, that Adam failed under. Christ fulfilled that for us. We relate to the law in a wholly different way. It's not that we no longer have any relation to the law. but we are no longer under the law in a sense that it condemns us. It's condemning power is taken away and I look forward to kind of getting into that more next week. As we come to the communion table, this is a picture of that for us, a picture of what Christ has done as he came and lived that perfect life of righteousness for us and died the death that we deserve. We enjoy in this sacramental meal a cracker and juice. They represent Christ's body and blood given for us. That he did the very thing that Adam failed to do, the very thing that we failed to do, he did it for us. He did it in our place. He stood in our place, condemned, although he had done no sin. He hung on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God against our sins so that we could be children of the living God. We take these elements as a family, understanding that we are now participants in the work of Christ, that we are participants in him. As we say every week, I would encourage you just as the elements go by, that if you don't believe the message of the gospel, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ came to pay the debt that you could never pay, that he came to fulfill the law in a way that you could never do, if you don't believe that, we would ask that you allow the elements to pass by you. This is a meal that we take because we believe, not to earn favor before God, but because he has shown his divine favor to us so that we can rest in his son's finished work and we enjoy these things as a, as a family. We pray and we'll celebrate this meal together. Father we we praise you that you have rescued us from the power of sin you've you've brought us out from under the condemning work of of the law that you've ushered us into Christ that you was you have Brought us into Him, that we have new life in Him. Father, I know that oftentimes the law still bears down on us. And oftentimes we still, in our self righteousness, my self righteousness, look to it as though. Perhaps maybe this time I can fulfill it. Father, the coming before your communion table, coming before the the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder to us that we can't, that we couldn't. That another had to do it in our place. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15 had to come. And though he would be bruised, in that bruising on the cross, he would crush our enemy. Father, help us as we are nourished upon this meal, as we are nourished upon Christ. Help us to flee from our self-righteousness. remembering how far short of your glory we fall. Help us to cling to you. Help us to have a sweet assurance that can only be found in you, that can be enjoyed in you, not because we look at ourselves. Because if we look at ourselves, we're going to go away like that young man in Matthew. Help us to look to Christ and his finished work for us. Help us to rest in him. Help us to celebrate him. Help us to move away from anything in our hearts that is causing us to boast in ourselves. Help us, Father, even in our doubts, to move away from those things that would cause us to think that we have to do something or or believe better to have stronger faith for us to be acceptable before you and help us to look to Christ. So Father, we pray for your work, the work of your Holy Spirit even now as we enjoy this, this supper, that you would knit our hearts to you, that you would help us to see and to boast in Jesus Christ alone, to find in him our greatest comfort, our greatest hope, And life and death and body and soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit
1: us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.